You know what I'm going to say, turn in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's always a humbling thing as a public speaker when you stand up to speak and a good portion of the crowd walks out on you. But they are among the most immature in our church. That's right, young man. That's the color hair I had when I was his age, for real. And it started turning red, orange, and then just sort of, you know, fell out. I lost it. It's just strands of protein molecules, really. I mean, hey, we're in this book. We just started a series last week uh, called Are You Satisfied? We're asking you that question as we look at this great book. It's uh, right in the middle of your Bibles. It's um, in the uh, wisdom literature. Those who've systemized their theology would call this part of the wisdom literature. One of five books, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job. And Ecclesiastes, the other four books, I would say, I said it last Sunday, I believe. I said it in my small group Wednesday night. We kind of get those books. Uh, Psalms and Proverbs teach us how to have success, to be right with God and other people. Song of Solomon, we know what that's about, blush, blush. It's about love, romantic love and, and pleasure. Job is a book we wish it wouldn't, wasn't in there, or at least we wish it wasn't a part of our lives, but it's a book about abject suffering when life gets the lowest of the lows. But why Ecclesiastes? It just seems to be uh, pretty troubling. Uh, we're going to put a verse up in just a moment. Uh, in chapter 2, not yet though, but uh, the book starts off by uh, saying the following, the words of the preacher, the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. Here's that Hebrew word uh, for the word uh, preacher. It's a kind of a fancy word. It's the quabeleth. Now we have some, um, I could pronounce these Hebrew words really any way I wanted to, right? But I, I can't do that because we've got at least two Reformed Theological seminary students in the room today. But this is the Hebrew word, and it means preacher, teacher, and what I submitted to you last week, really more a uh, philosopher. This is someone who's dropping some of the big questions uh, in life. You know, we're all on this search, and for many of us, life is about a carrot on a stick. It's just out there in front of us, and we think if I can just get there, I'll be happy. And probably some of the deepest pain I know in the room, you're not going to believe this, some of you, because this is rarefied air, but some of the deepest pain in the room are those who searched after something, great wealth and all that, and then they get it. And then they're left. Because I think a lot of your meaning in life, yours and mine, has to do with our struggle in life. I don't know about you, but I struggle. i got to get up and lead a church, right? I struggle at times, and it brings a lot of meaning just to uh, put food on the table, provide for my family, and be a, a spiritual leader. So a lot of the meaning, the moral compass of my life is in the, the tough stuff and the struggle. So it is for 99% of us. But some people, man, they land the lotto or something, and it's like, there they are, left. I, I know some of them. I wish we had a bunch more in our church, but I, I know a couple of them. And they're left in a dark room wondering what really, really, really matters because what they thought they wanted, they got it, and now they're wondering what they really, really do want and why they were even made. You see, our, our search is not ultimately for joy and happiness. It's ultimately for meaning. And there, there we are in the, the book of Ecclesiastes. This guy... Uh, the Quebeleth, the, the philosopher, he drops these big questions and he uses a Hebrew word. We talked about it last week, vanity of vanities. The better word is probably meaningless life, but it, it, it's phonetically awkward to say that. So vanity of vanities is repeated in the English language. But here's the word that's used uh, 38 times. The um, Hebel, it's the Hebrew word there, and it's used 38 times in 12 books. That, that, I think we could agree this guy's emphasizing something, right? When he, I mean, here's your theme of Ecclesiastes. It, it's all vanity. Solomon, the preacher, teacher, philosopher, he, he is the one writing this. And he says, hey, I tried it all. Uh, I was a humanist. I was a hedonist. I was an existentialist. 
I, I tried education. I tried acquisition. I tried to live all out. Uh, the biggest herds, the best food, the choicest wines, the biggest parties. You guys just load up songs on your playlist or go to the occasional concert every now and then. But this guy like bought the band and had it come to his house. Uh, wives, concubines, slaves, and servants, the building of the houses, the digging of the pools, the planting of the gardens, all uh, over the top. And he says in, in chapter 1, he says, verse 10, I believe it is, he says, uh, I, I, I didn't deny my eyes any pleasure. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep it from me. Whatever my heart wanted, whatever pleasure that was, I didn't keep that from me. But chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, check this out. He says, I hated life. Everything under the sun, I hated it. A chasing after the wind, a striving. It's an exercise in vanity and futility. He repeats it. You don't have to look at chapter 2 and verse 17. He repeats it 37 more times throughout these 12 chapters. I just cannot find what I'm searching for. The words of the preacher. Today, what I love is that a book that is so uh, seemingly esoteric and philosophical can be immensely practical. And I pray today that God will use the, the remaining time that we have to speak to some of you, to poke you, to prod you, to comfort you if you need that, but to challenge you if you need that. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to read these verses. I would love for you to look down if you have an open Bible or a tablet. He says this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Solomon's saying, I hate my job. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled. He will be for all which I toiled. Do you see that? And he used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun because... Sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. How many think he just needs an antidepressant or maybe a Red Bull? <laughs> this also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Solomon is saying two things. I'll break it down for you. He's saying two things about work, about his job. He's saying uh, in verses 18 to 20, you can't take it with you. And then he's saying in 21 to 23, you can't control it after you're gone. And then that last verse, I kind of stuttered. I stopped before I read it just for emphasis. But he says on the night watches, you, you got a job like that. You work during the day, but on the night watches, you're just wrestling about your job. It's hard to have a good night because you've had a bad day and you know you're going to another bad day tomorrow. What wisdom Solomon gives us, that day job, that job, that thing that you thought was going to bring you so much purpose, and it eats away at you. It's an acid in your soul. Do you know people who hate their job, who are miserable at their job? Do you know how you know those people are miserable in their job? I know. I know how you know. They're miserable in their job, and you know that because they make you miserable listening to how much they hate their job. Am I right? And they're going to tell you every detail about that. They, they hate it. Do you know somebody who loves their job, 
I mean, for them, it's, it's never the same. It, it always varies. Uh, never the, a dull routine. It's never monotonous. It, it changes. They're, they're using uh, how God has made them. They've discovered a proficiency or a passion, and they've employed it, and they're being gainfully employed, and others can benefit from it. And these people love their job. Do you know some people like that? Do you, I, you do, right? And you know that they love their job. I know how you know they love their job, right? Because they make you miserable by telling you how much they love their job, right? And Solomon is saying this, can you really find purpose in your labor? Obviously not, if you looked at the verses we just read, right? You you can't. We said last week, I'd love to weave it into these next six weeks of, of this study, Ecclesiastes, but when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, you lose a sense of all things. And a job can be a very good thing. Young people, listen to me. Uh, you're not going to find your ultimate purpose on a job. And you and I just need to understand that there's a vexation to it. There's a lot of toil and a lot of misery and a lot of hard stuff. But wait, not so fast, my friend. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 24, right after this. There is nothing, okay, here's schizo, bipolar, Solomon. There is nothing better for a person. You thought you had trouble. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from, notice the three words, hand of God. Contrast under the sun with hand of God. Do you get, do you get it? He's saying, if you're trying to make it your ultimate thing, It's going to hurt you because there's just a lot about work that's not any good. Now, any Bible teacher, any scholar would do very well to present before a congregation the following. Um, God created work, and he did so before the fall. A lot of our pain and toil and vexation is a result of the fall. We're naked and we're ashamed after the fall. God did a good thing. I think if you ask me, man, he created a man and a woman, and they didn't wear clothes, and they ran around in perfection. I think that's pretty good. Thank God. God is a good God, isn't he? But a lot of you're like, should I laugh and just encourage this guy or not? Um, you guys are uptight. I'm just going to tell you. Um, but God is a good God, how he originally created it. But sin marred everything. What did sin mar? Everything. Who did sin touch? Everyone. Sin affected everyone in every manner uh, in the full way. But God did create life, and he created a man. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not quite as good as it can be. Let's create a woman. God created, no matter what you believe about the literal days or metaphor behind it all, I'm not here to argue that, but God created. And God created things that are good, and God created work before the fall. Pain when you give birth, ladies, that's after the fall. Being ashamed of your nakedness and sin and broken, all, that's after the fall. But work before the fall. You have needs for connection and relation and you have needs for ambition. And God says you can find great joy in your work if it's from the hand of God. Uh, flip over or look on the screen at chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. It's always good when you're studying a particular book uh, from one author to look at the whole sum of it. Um, Here's this verse. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. Uh, Have you noticed this guy is an observer? I mean, he's a contemplative observer of life. Uh, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is 
the gift of God. I wonder if when Solomon was writing that about wealth and power and possessions, if he didn't have his nose up a little bit because the dude had more than anybody. But he's saying, hey, when you achieve something, it can really be a good gift from God. I've said it before. I think I said it when our church was over in Dueling Hall. It's trending out to rip the rich. I hope that we don't rip the rich. God has given some people the power to make wealth. And it can be, it can be a great blessing. This morning, as we round second base, I want to give you four ideas. If you're a note taker, you're going to love this. But I'm going to give you four things that for which we can begin to look at our job as being from the hand of God. The first is uh, the word that you hear a lot. It's bandied about a lot with very little understanding. It's cliche, overused, we're dulled uh, by its meaning because of that. But it's the word passion. Solomon had a lot of it. Now, there's a verse in Psalm 139 that has been hijacked by the pro-life movement. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm, I'm pro-life. It's been um, um, almost monopolized by, by women and beauty and image, and that's a good thing. I just My point is this, that it's not just those things. But it says, David said this, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. A lot of implications for that. God made you. He formed you. He knitted you. From the very beginning. That means he's created you a certain way. Everybody is hardwired with a passion. Everybody's got something or some things that they've been created for. Do you know the first person in all the Bible who was said to be filled with the Spirit of God? Do you know who that might be? Some of you are pretty studied, pretty learned. Scan, I'll give you a second. Scan in your mind. Who, who would be the first person? Who, it was ever said that they were filled with the Spirit of God. Would it have been Adam or Abraham or, or Noah or Joseph or David or Esther or Ruth or any of the prophets? Would it have been Joseph of the New Testament or Paul? Who was the first person? Let me show you this scripture in Exodus chapter 34. Second book of our Bible, Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 to 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God. The first mention of that in all the Scripture. I filled him with the Spirit and with what else? With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. You see, we think of the filling of the Spirit. Some whole denominations teach that it's some mystical, over-spiritualized thing. But here we see the first mention of someone being filled with God's Spirit as someone that God gifted with very, very practical skills to be used. It was time to build the tabernacle for the nation of Israel. And God says, get this guy who's a craftsman. He's skilled in design. He has an eye for color and a flair for artistic design. Now notice what he didn't say. This, he didn't say, hey, Moses, come here. We need to enroll you in a Bob Vila course. You need to go down to the local Ace Hardware or to Lowe's or to Home Improvement and sign up for one of those how-to classes. They got a bunch of them. I was in one of them the other day. They got a lot of how-to classes you can sign up for. Anybody do those things ever? Uh, God didn't say that to Moses. He didn't say, hey, Moses, you're not a very good craftsman. He didn't say, stop leading the people of God and develop this skill. He said, no, this guy. 
I'm going to take his natural talents and put my spirit in him and fill him up. And I want him to use how he's been gifted. I want to put an, an extra touch on that and let him use his gifting and his skill. Have you discovered your passion? God has fearfully and wonderfully made you and he's given you something. And the more that you can align your passion with your job, the deeper satisfaction you're going to have. You're going to move away from uh, some of those eight, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 to 23 ideas and move toward uh, chapter 2, verse 24 and chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. You'll find more satisfaction. You'll find more joy when you're doing something that God has made you to do. You see, that's God's idea of a community, to take people that he has gifted and to use that for the betterment of the community. And isn't it freeing? When you're doing what you're doing, you guys know I've said it so many times, I really don't have to say it. I'm not an organized guy. I can't administrate a church. Chuckle, chuckle around the room, right? So we've made some moves. We've made some moves to make sure that as our church grows, that we can give life to our community, that we can be generous and we can be benevolent, that we can meet needs uh, in our community. In the spirit of Acts chapter 6, when the early church began to grow, uh, they began to complain because there was unmet needs. And what did they do? They, they got some deacons. And this summer right here with different color carpet and uh, without LED lights, we ordained some guys to be deacons in our church to love and care for people to make sure that we're growing in leadership as our church grows. And just um, a few weeks ago, uh, we um, hired a, an executive pastor to come around me to be a right arm to help lead us and organize us and administrate us. A lot of you know uh, Jeff Hightower. And he's been helping us. Unfortunately, he hasn't done a good job, and we're going to have to let Jeff go just after three weeks. Kind of tacky that we would do that in a sermon. But Jeff has got this great gift. And after just a few weeks, I'm telling you, I, I've been blessed, and our church is being blessed. And I can't, I can't only think of the ways in the future that we're going to be blessed because this guy, he gets structures and systems, and he is detailed and has follow-through. He has a gifting and a passion uh, to do what he's doing in our church and my life and marriage and home life is only going to be better because someone has stepped up uh, to do this. A second thing uh, beyond passion is culture. I talked to someone a few uh, weeks ago who they found a job that aligns with their passion, but guess what? They've got a bad culture. You ever heard this? People join organizations, but they leave managers. Bosses are a big deal, aren't they? Some of you, you got something. You studied in college. You did a postgraduate work. You got a job that fits your passion, but you're in a bad culture. A micromanager, mean-spirited or unattentive, uninspiring, hands-off, uncaring manager can crush people in the workplace, can it? And a culture matters. Let me share with you. If you're a note-taker, you may want to jot a few of these down. There's one culture in a workplace is toxic. A toxic work culture. Maybe uh, you work in a toxic wor work culture where trust is low, friction is high, fear abounds. It's, it's, it's a tough environment. You know it, don't you? I mean, the talk around the water cooler, the break room, I mean, who's talking and not talking and people backstabbing, not having each other, not supporting one another, not celebrating the other person's, person's success. There's a, measure, a measurement and irrelevance at the workplace. It's a toxic work environment. 
But for some of you, you're in a, a critical work environment where you're just unsure. This thing is, something's changing, right? Something is changing in this environment. It's like a football team that's about to get a new head coach or they've gotten a new head coach and they wonder which direction it's going to take. The, the work environment in, in, in this, this is, it's, it's just uncertain. It's unclear which way is it going to go. And some environments, they're, uh, they're natural. It's a natural work environment. Um, nothing really to be um, enthusiastic about, but you're comfortable. Nothing to panic about, but there's also nothing to really brag about either. And there is a, lastly, there's a flourishing culture. And this is when, man, the flywheel is spinning. When the graph, if the growth and the relationships are charted by graph, it's up and to the right. The, the environment of the work is flourishing. People have each other's back. The opposite of toxic, there is high trust. There's very little fear, of very little friction. And when there is friction, people, they're not just concerned about the work they're doing. They're concerned about how they do the work. And they, they deal with conflict proactively. They have uh, tough conversations, but they do it in an uplifting way. And here's what I want to say to every follower of Christ. You're either, in your work environment, you're either a cultural buster or a culture builder. I, I talk to our own staff. I remind myself every conversation we have during the day. We, we can either bust the culture, we can either break somebody down, or we can build somebody up. Man, the scripture in its wisdom gives us so many passages. So, so it's such a clarion call to let your words give life to other people. And in your environment, no matter what it is, if it's toxic or something in the middle or flourishing, do your words bust up the culture or does it build up other people around you? Your passion uh, and your culture. A third thing is challenge. It's a challenge. There's, a, there's a, 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 a big idea that we need to be challenged. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you remember I, I brought up a, a simple bungee cord and I stretched it out and I said, this thing is far more comfortable when it's not being stretched. But it's designed, it's doing its job when it's stretched. And so it is of our church, so it is uh, in your life as well. God has designed you to stretch you. Your maximum effectiveness is going to be when you are stretched. Some of us, when it comes to challenge, are, are, are under-challenged. When someone at work is under-challenged, they grow bored, they're lackadaisical, they begin to uh, circulate their resume. If you're a manager or leader, look for these people because they stare over the fence uh, looking for something else. They've been under-challenged. Another way that we're challenged is uh, being appropriately challenged. Now, that sounds like the sweet spot, doesn't it? If you're appropriately challenged, that means that, well, I mean, you're right there, right? It's appropriate and you're being challenged, but no. When you're appropriately challenged, you're not relying on your teammates. You're not getting on your knees. You're, you're not depending on God. You don't, you're, you, you, it's, you're not in over your head. You're not really being stretched. You're, what you're doing kind of fits who you are. And you, over time, you can grow bored. Another possibility of challenge in your workplace is being over-challenged. And this is when uh, people that know that know engines, they know that, man, an engine has a, uh, what is it, a tachometer? And that's, that judges if, 
judges if you've revved up too fast. There's a, a red line, and when you, when you really go fast, you, you take that tachometer and you take it over to a danger zone. Now, if you're in a race, if you're racing a car or boat or something, a lawnmower, I mean, if you're racing somebody, man, you, you rev it up, and you can, you can do a bust, you burst. You can do a sudden six to seven to eight-second burst of energy with that engine. It might, it might win you the race, but you can't stay at that level. You can't stay there. The other night I was right out here on the sidewalk, walking around, fondering, checking out Cheney's Dog Park and visiting with some people. And two of the singles in our church, a guy and a girl, uh, parked at our church parking lot. They were going for a run, and I caught them. I busted them. There they were. And one of the guys said to me, he goes, man, we were just talking about you uh, last night, Robert, and our small group. We were, we were just saying, man, your job, your job has to be so miserable. I mean, everybody calling you all the time and expecting you to help them and to be there and all the expectations. <clears throat> and on one hand, I thought, man, thank goodness somebody's, you know, not being that, oh, you only work one day a week kind of guy, right? But in a kind of a weird way, I was almost complimented that he thought my job was miserable. But I know this, that when we're, we, can't, we can't rev up the engine for too long. And we've got to be careful of how we find our energy and when we're depleted because burnout is serious business in the ministry. You guys know that? Everybody knows October, Pastor Appreciation Month. It's coming up. I want to emphasize that a couple more times before next month. But I, I relish being your pastor. I relish being able to lead Fondren Church. And I'm thankful for some people that understand the challenge that, that come around me and, and make it a joy. And I'm learning that we can't go too hard, too fast, for too long. So if the optimal challenge environment of working is not being under-challenged or appropriately challenged or over-challenged, what is it? Let me submit this. It's being appropriately challenged plus appropriately challenged plus. It's like when you go to the gym, and you guys know I do every day, but when you go to the gym and you work on your core, that's trendy now, I learned that from a magazine, to work on your core. When you're at the gym, you're working on your core or anything, uh, gym rats know that, man, you work hard and you're breaking down a muscle in order to grow it, but you're not breaking it down to the point of, of tearing it or spraining it, but you're breaking it down just enough for it to hurt but to be good, right? And that appropriately challenged plus work environment is sort of the real sweet spot. You see, you're doing what you're called to do. You found your passion and proficiency and you're using it for employment and other people are blessed by it, but it stretches you. It doesn't stretch you too much, too hard, too fast for too long, but it stretches you and you know that you need God and you know you need to rely on your teammates and have people around you and it creates a, a, a joy and a challenge. So we've looked at passion and culture and challenge. And the last one, this will be good, compensation. Jesus said this, that the worker deserves his wages. It's a good thing, isn't it? When, when you work hard, man, you ought to be paid. I, I believe that's true in, in a church and in any environment. Now, we know that we live in a uh, there's a great dis discrepancy between teachers and actors. Isn't that a shame? There's a great uh, discrepancy between a bank teller and an investment banker. 
there's, there's pay discrepancies that I wish we could just switch the price tags on in some ways, especially after watching the off-field events in the National Football League the last couple of weeks. It grieves you, doesn't it? The way we treat women and children. The way strong guys with their brute strength run over the weaker and more vulnerable. Man, I wish we could pay our, our teachers and, and coaches and other people more. But when it comes to compensation, Jesus said the worker deserves his wages. We ought to fight for a more just society. We ought to tip well, by the way, Christians, when we go eat lunch today. You know, our reputation's not good after church on Sunday. Tithe well and tip well, uh, especially tithe well. Um, but compensation is important, isn't it? Just nod your head. If, if, if you've thought about compensation in your life a little bit lately, just kind of nod your head so that I'm, I'm not alone here. And on one side, let, let's say it's sort of a teeter-totter. I love the phrase, teeter-totter. I could have said seesaw, but that would rob me of the opportunity to say teeter-totter. But let's say on the teeter-totter, there on one side there is pay. And on the other side, there is passion. Okay? Pay and passion. Now, inevitably, college students will choose a school. And then somewhere around their third or fourth year, they'll choose a major. And they'll, they will be, uh, they'll decide between the teeter-totter between pay or passion. Do I, do I follow after what I love in choosing this major or do I go for the bank for the big bucks? And they'll, some of them will call home and they'll say, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to become a dancer or a poet. <laughs> and then the wet blanket question from the parent, yes, but how will you pay the bills? And they really care. That student cares about the right side of the teeter-totter. The parent cares about the left side. And why? Why does the parent care about the left side? Because they're paying your bills, right? And they want you to be able to take care of them one day, right? This is the tension. One of my good friends, a great guy, um, 39, 40-year-old, texted me about three months ago and said, in fact, he did this very thing. He goes, pay or passion? He's praying about his own life. He's praying about leading his family, he's in a great profession, uh, makes money, but pay or passion? Robert, which should I do? Here's the choice for every thinking person. If you have low pay but high passion, you're doing something that you really love, but you're just not making a lot of money. Supplement your income. But if the reverse is true on the teeter-totter, you have high pay but low passion, supplement your passion. Let's go back to the first one, the low pay, high passion. These are, let me say this, I've seen Christians on both sides. I've seen Christ followers who will, um, man, they'll bankrupt their families, they'll ruin their credit, their homes will get foreclosed because they refuse to take a job that didn't fit their passions 100%. Now, let me just drop some scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul said, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, his family's better translation, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and worse than the unbeliever. Paul would say, drop the passion, put food on the table. And men, call me, we'll talk. If not me, another man or somebody in your small group. But listen to what I'm telling you this morning. Next, 
the, um, let's say you have uh, the second equation. If you have high pay but low passion, I have also, uh, I've seen people who, they didn't follow their passion. They went for the, the bank. And these people live in large homes. They're beautiful and they're well decorated, but when you look at them, there's no life in them. They're an empty shell. And God wants to stir up that passion in them. But if you're a man or woman and you're providing for your family, know this, that it is a good thing. And if God raises your income, that is a very good thing. But you supplement your passion. Some of you are this way, aren't you? I know a lot of, I mean, I'm just going to say it, a lot of doctors and lawyers. I mean, I find a lot of very unhappy lawyers these days. They're just not happy, but they're making a good living. Not all lawyers are, but they're making a good living, but they're like, they're finding their joy through volunteer work, through that triathlon or Ironman on the weekend, through volunteering and giving and being involved in their church. And that can all be a very, very good thing. I know a friend who, um, who has basically started a church about a year ago. And, man, his passion is the local church. And I believe in this guy. I believe that God will use him to grow a very uh, successful, life-giving, God-honoring church. But it's been very hard. And though he has a passion for the church, the pay has not been good. I mean, starting a church is it's one of the stupidest things you can do. Let me just say that, okay? It, it just makes sure you have to do it. Make sure God's called you to do it. But we were blessed. And... I'll try to fight back emotion, but some of you that I'm looking at, you've been a part of this from the beginning, and you allowed us not to go very long without worrying about our own family. And I didn't have to, I didn't have to sacrifice pay and passion. But my friend who started a church, I couldn't imagine being this guy. He, he's got greater rewards in heaven, I'm sure. But he started a church, and he's working a job on the side because that church can't fully pay him. I know a man on the opposite side. You know him too, don't you? The author of Love Does, Bob Goff. He spoke, I'm seeing Brad Rees back there, he spoke at Brent's about a, a year and a half ago when he was in town at a larger speaking engagement. About 50 of us went and had breakfast with him that morning. He wrote uh, the book Love Does. and he, he has made a lot of money, continues to make a lot of money as a, literally a world-class attorney, a brilliant legal mind. But he kind of hates his job. He loves the paycheck, but he loves Love does. He loves this ministry, Restore International. And he is involved in doing some unbelievable acts of mercy and justice in Uganda and India. And if you hadn't read Love Does, run out and get it. Uh, fire it up on your Kindle and read, read this great work. Well, Bob Goff hates his day job. Listen to this, some of you. He hates his day job, but that day job is so good. That money is so good. He can provide and help others. And that's his number one tool in his own fundraising. But his passion is to see people experience God's love around the globe. And this morning as we close, I want to put a few questions up about your toil and your labor. Four of them. Does your job fit your area of passion? If not, what can you do about it? If so, you ought to stand up right now and shout hallelujah. Not really. Number two, is the culture of your workplace life-giving to you? What can, you, what can you do, rather, to be a culture builder rather than a culture buster? Number three, are you above or below the AC, that is appropriately challenged plus challenge level, in your current job? 
You're having to process that one, right? That's going to take five minutes. Come back to that later. Number four, if pay and passion are not aligned in your current job, which solution that we've talked about, really, which solution above, will lead to the most God-honoring alignment for you? As a few of you write furiously, I will keep those up. All of Ecclesiastes, we've just started this book, all of Ecclesiastes talks about, as we've said, the vanity under the sun, translation, without God. And work without God is very painful. It's downright miserable. My job description, I've told some of you before, is very clear from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4 says that pastors preach and teach and lead so that the church, you guys, will be equipped to do the works of service. Let's not invert this thing. I'm looking at a friend who's in a small group that I lead. He's a manager of some guys. And, man, he's taking things and posting. He's not obnoxious. He doesn't bring his Bible and thump it at people over the head. He doesn't make them sing gospel choruses in the workroom. He doesn't try to evangelize everybody at every time. But he wants to be salt and light and to bring God into his workplace. He has made hard decisions this year about who stays and who goes. But he wants to be a light. He wants to be a culture builder in his workplace. He emails me and tells me about some of the things he's learning, how he applies it in his workplace. That is the church being the church that you would go. You will spend a third of your life at your job. And then like Solomon, you'll spend a lot more time in the night watches worrying about that job. Let me say to the Christ follower who wants to get serious about seeing God use you, I'm going to close with this. A Gallup poll did a, the Gallup Poll Organization did a study entitled, uh, this 2013, entitled uh, Americans in the Workplace. And the study revealed the following, that only 30% of Americans are excited about their work. 52% are just sort of disengaged from their work. And a whopping 18% of Americans are so ticked off at work that they're willing to do whatever it takes to hurt their organization. Translate that to the reservoir. Ten crew in a canoe. And three people are rowing furiously and intensely with passion. And five people are staring at the scenery and the alligators. And two people are trying to sink the canoe. Picture that as a workplace, an average American workplace. And who are you in the canoe? And you contrast that with a canoe on the reservoir with 10 people who all 10 are paddling with intensity and enthusiasm. Who's going to win that race every single time? And follower of Jesus, who are you in the canoe? Let's pray. God, I stand before your people, some who are miserable, some who um, are students who are looking ahead to so many possibilities, but they're worried. They've got something stirring up in them that could very likely be from you, but they've got those parents, they've got the pressure. We all walk in a world that's terribly expensive. 
full of problems with things that break, things that cost a lot. And God, you are our provider. I've seen you. I see you doing that in my own life, in the life of our church. And God, I pray that you would be a, a provider when it comes to joy and satisfaction in life. I, I pray a prayer of blessing over uh, these dear people. That, Lord, more and more of us could walk in this satisfaction. That we could go work and build a culture and get a paycheck and give blessings to, to our families, relatives, to others. And sit down at night over a meal with people we love. Tired, exhausted, challenges awaiting us the next day, but with a heart deep with gladness and joy. Lord, I pray for the families or people in here who, uh, Lord, they're imploding and it's hard and they need a real touch of your grace today. For the workaholic father, husband who's bringing it home. To the distracted mother who wonders if, if the little things have meaning. God, I would pray now, right now, that your hand of grace would touch them. You know every need. I'm so limited, but you know every need in this room. And you're not only a need knower, you're a need meter. God, for the proud heart that's made the buck, the bank, the, the living, the prestige of the job for that man or woman who's making a good thing about, making it an ultimate thing. Lord, I pray for grace in their life as well. Lord, we give you this time as we worship, as we respond to you. May you be honored in these moments. In Jesus, we pray together, amen. Would you stand? And a few of us are gonna be down front, Gary and Susan and I. We would love, we would love this time to be a time uh, to pray over anybody in the room where God is stirring something up. Uh, let's let this moment be holy. Let's let this time be a time that would honor him. Prayer's powerful. Prayer's powerful. Uh, we would love the opportunity. If you have a decision that you're struggling with, something God is doing in your life, or maybe the heavens just feel closed and you need uh, someone to come around you to pray for you, would you, would you give us that opportunity in these few moments? Let's sing.